Hello, you're listening to a Zen Studies Society podcast. To learn more about our community of Zen Buddhist practitioners, please visit zenstudies.org. Bodhidharma's Breakthrough Sermon. Throughout the sutras, the Buddha tells mortals they can achieve enlightenment by performing such meritorious works as building monasteries, casting statues, burning incense, scattering flowers, lighting eternal lamps, practicing all six periods of the day and night, walking around stupas, observing fasts, and worshiping. But if beholding the mind includes all other practices, then such works as these would appear redundant. The sutras of the Buddha contain countless metaphors. Because mortals have shallow minds and don't understand anything deep, the Buddha used the tangible to represent the sublime. People who seek blessings by concentrating on external works instead of internal cultivation are attempting the impossible. What you call a monastery, we call a sangharama, a place of purity. But whoever denies entry to the three poisons and keeps the gates of his senses pure, his body and mind still, inside and outside clean, builds a monastery. And burning incense doesn't mean ordinary material incense, but the incense of the intangible dharma, which drives away filth, ignorance, and evil deeds with its perfume. There are five kinds of such dharma incense. First is the incense of morality, which means renouncing evil and cultivating virtue. Second is the incense of meditation, which means deeply believing in the Mahayana with unwavering resolve. Third is the incense of wisdom, which means contemplating the body and mind, inside and out. Fourth is the incense of liberation, which means severing the bonds of ignorance. And fifth is the incense of perfect knowledge, which means being always aware and nowhere obstructed. These five are the most precious kinds of incense and far superior to anything the world has to offer. When the Buddha was in the world, he told his disciples to light such precious incense with the fire of awareness as an offering to the Buddhas of the Ten Directions. 
But people today don't understand the Tathagata's real meaning. They use an ordinary flame to light material incense of sandalwood or frankincense and pray for some future blessing that never comes. for being here. Another Bodhidharma day. Bodhidharma is of all of the patriarchs, certainly my favorite patriarch. And I say that even though not that much is really known about Bodhidharma. His dates are very uncertain. Even when he came to China is uncertain. He lived more or less halfway between the Buddha and our time. So the teachings of the Buddha were about as old at the time that Bodhidharma lived as Bodhidharma's teachings are to our time. We don't know for sure where he came from. The ancient texts and the scholars who study those texts disagree. Some people say that he came from southern India. Some people say that he came from Persia or Central Asia. Some people say he arrived in China in the early 5th century some people say he arrived in China in the early 6th century. So a lot of mystery around Bodhidharma and lots and lots of legends. Anybody know why the picture over there has his eyes bulging out? He cut off his eyelids. Yeah. That's, that's, the, that's the legend. He cut off his eyelids. He was doing zazen in his, uh, in his cave. He supposedly, after he um, insulted the emperor and went uh, away from the land that he was originally received in, um, he went to a cave and meditated facing a wall for nine years. And he found himself falling asleep and not wanting to fall asleep, he cut off his eyelids and threw them on the ground. And tea plants grew up, and that is supposedly how tea came to China. You see, yeah, a lot of, lot of, a lot of uh, tall tales about Bodhidharma. Um, he supposedly 
um, was the one who brought uh, martial arts to Shaolin Temple, or Shorinji as we refer to it using the Japanese translation. He's, he's uh, credited as being the founder of um, Kung Fu, which is probably also a tall tale. He probably brought some form of uh, Indian yoga to China, um, and it wouldn't be unusual if he taught his monks yoga, but I doubt very much that he taught them uh, flying fists and how to f defend themselves. Um, another story about him is that he was um, spotted on a road between China and India walking with one shoe and um, the person who observed him doing that went back to um, Shaolin Temple and said that he had seen Bodhidharma and um, the monks there said that's impossible he died recently and so they exhumed his body and found that the only thing that was left in the grave was one shoe. So lots and lots of stories about Bodhidharma. Um, there's a story which is told in the Hekiganroku, the Blue Cliff Record, which is one of the principal uh, koan collections. And that is the story of how he came to visit the emperor in northern China. And the emperor had uh, built many Buddhist temples and monasteries. Bodhidharma um, was not the one who brought Buddhism to China. Um, what he is credited with is being the one who brought the Zen uh, branch of Buddhism to China. And so China, Buddhism already existed in China and the, the um, emperor was very proud of all of the great works that he had done to facilitate the faith. And he asked Bodhidharma what merit he had accumulated by all of these works. And Bodhidharma said, no merit whatsoever. And the emperor, of course, was a bit taken aback by that and said, um, hmm, so what's the, what's the, uh, the most important holy teaching? Bodhidharma said, no holiness just emptiness. And that kind of blew the emperor's mind. So he's like completely flabbergasted and he says, well, who are you? Bodhidharma says, I don't know. 
and then Bodhidharma scampers away before the emperor gets too pissed off at him and does something nasty. And uh, the emperor calls his uh, his uh, head priest and says, who, who was that guy? And the priest said that, oh, that was, a, that was an incarnation of, uh, of Avalokiteshvara, come to save the world. So the emperor sends after him, desperate to bring this bodhisattva back. But the bodhisattva says, if you send all of, the, all of your men after me, I would not return. And he goes off to meditate in the cave for nine years. So that's the story. And that story um, dovetails nicely with this particular sermon. The way, the way this sermon works and the way most early um, Buddhist, uh, Zen Buddhist texts, uh, including this this uh, sermon and um, a number of others that are collected in, in this book, the Zen teaching of Bodhidharma um, and um, the Platform Sutra of Wei Neng and a bunch of other uh, earlier texts. They, they function as a dialogue. There's, a, there's an interlocutor uh, questioner and then the master gives answers. The question is, um, uh, denoted as a question by being printed in italics. So the first part of this text that I read is the questioner. Throughout the sutras, the Buddha tells mortals they can achieve enlightenment by performing such meritorious works as building monasteries, casting statues, burning incense, scattering flowers, lighting eternal lamps, practicing all six periods of the day and night, walking around stupas, observing fasts and worshiping. But if beholding the mind includes all other practices, then such works as these would appear redundant. Now this, this comes in the middle of this sermon and the sermon begins by, by Bodhidharma saying that the one most important uh, practice in, in Buddhism is observing the mind, beholding the mind, he calls it. Beholding the mind. And he states that beholding the mind includes all other practices. And the questioner's question really is almost exactly the question that the emperor had given Bodhidharma. I've built so many monasteries, supported so many monks, built so many stupas. Ain't I great? Buddy Dharma says, no merit, none whatsoever. It's not to say that it's not a good thing to do these things, you know, and it's a good thing for you to donate to New York Sendo and to donate to the monastery because, you know, it's, it's very helpful and it's, it's a good thing. 
But as far as gaining any merit towards enlightenment, no, no, it doesn't work that way. Um, it certainly is a wonderful thing and, and uh, to be commended and uh, it may have some, some karmic benefit, you know, but if what you're after is transcending karma rather than accumulating good karma, eh, ain't going to cut it. And what Bodhidharma is about is transcending your karma. Not, not building up good karma so that you're going to be reborn in a nice, cozy, comfy existence, but just cutting through all of that stuff and attaining liberation. And it's very important to, to keep those things in mind. There's nothing wrong with accumulating good karma. Nothing at all. It's a wonderful thing. It's wonderful to do good deeds, to be kind, to be generous. All of those things are important. But they're important in a different sense. They're not important in the sense of freeing you. They're important in the sense of making your life better, making the lives of those around you better. And that certainly has merit. That certainly is important. That's a wonderful thing. But as far as getting past all of your attachments, really freeing yourself, liberating yourself, it's just not the same thing. So Bodhidharma says, the sutras contain countless metaphors. You have to understand the difference between talking about building monasteries, lighting incense, scattering flowers, all of these material practices which have their place in the world and true practice. True practice is not expressed in material objects. But the Buddha speaks in metaphors because people can't understand anything deep. And so he gives you these metaphors as a way of sort of drawing you in. And unfortunately, people get stuck in that. And even, even in Zen practice, there are some people who think, well, if I just arrange the altar in exactly the way that it's supposed to be and perform my bows in exactly the way they're supposed to be performed and do everything really, really mindfully without really knowing what mindful means, do everything mindfully which means, in their mind, do everything to a T, everything exactly right. And there's nothing wrong with doing everything exactly right. It's to be commended. I wish that I could do it. I, I can't. I, I'm like hopeless as far as ceremony goes. I'm just terrible at it. 
probably because it, really deep in my heart, I don't give a shit. <laughs> you know? I, there's a part of me that wishes I did. But when I'm honest with myself, I don't. It just doesn't matter to me. Never has, never will. But I am very serious about practice. And I know how little I know about practice. And I'm always trying to go deeper, to understand more. to really get beyond whatever obstructions I have. And that is what Bodhidharma is talking about in this sermon. What you call a monastery, we call a sangharama, a place of purity. But whoever denies entry to the three poisons and keeps the gates of his senses pure, his body and mind still, inside and outside clean, builds a monastery. I have to tell you that there is no way that you can deny entry to the three poisons. The three poisons of greed, anger, and delusion are going to be with you until you attain perfect nirvana. So when you get there, let me know, because I'd like to follow in your footsteps. But they're going to be with you for a really long time. That doesn't mean that you have to give up and not strive with them. But the way to strive with them is not by putting up your hands and saying, stop, stop, you're not coming in. Forget it. I won't let you. It's not going to work. Never has, never will. What Bodhidharma is talking about when he says beholding the mind is what in some other uh, branches of Buddhism is, are called mindfulness. It means being with what is here right here, right now. So that when greed arises, when aversion, fear, or anger arises, right there with 
you're right there, your awareness is attuned to the fact that it's there, that it's arising. Attuned to what it does to you. What does it do to your heart? What does it do to your body? What does it do to your mind? And by being with it and recognizing it, just as it comes up, rather than getting lost in it and being carried away by it as if you were being carried away by a flood, that is denying entry. Not that you are going to somehow keep these things from arising, but that you're going to keep yourself from being swept away by them. The only way of doing that is by being awake and paying attention, by noticing what's going on. The same thing with keeping your body and mind still. Your body and mind will be still when you die. Right now, good luck. But if you are aware of what's going on in your body, aware of what's going on in your mind, and not carried away by it, that's keeping your body and mind still. So you have pain. Are you lost in the pain? You have hunger. Are you lost in the hunger? Or are you there with it? This beholding the mind he doesn't mean centering your consciousness in the gray matter between one side of your skull and the other. He means being with whatever is arising, what's arising in your heart, what's arising in your body, what's arising in your spirit, what's arising in your thoughts being with it, being aware, abiding in awareness, and not being swept away. And that's hard. You know, it's hard. Moment. That's why we do Zazen, because in Zazen we have enough stillness that we can catch all of our habitual flutterings, our habitual delusions, diversions. We can notice when we're being swept away before we do anything dangerous because we've been swept away. We can notice and come back to ourselves and say, oh, where the hell was I just now? And start over again. And just start over again, and over again, and over again. That's what the practice is. It's noticing what's happening.
noticing what's happening in your body, noticing what's happening in your mind, noticing what's happening in your heart. And being aware of it, and just coming back to yourself, saying, oh, that's what's going on. That's what's going on. Okay. And that practice will change the way you interact with the world, the way you interact with other people, the way you interact with yourself. This beholding the mind will cause many bad habits to simply go away. Not all of them. But maybe all of them. You know, everybody's different. And this beholding the mind will change your relationship with all of the things that arise within you and around you. and lead you to a place of purity. portion of the sermon that I quoted is actually, um, I left out quite a bit. The, um, the next paragraph after he talks about, about building a monastery, he takes each of the things which the questioner mentioned and gives the deeper meaning for the examples that he's giving. So the next thing that the questioner mentioned was casting statues. And casting statues refers to all practices cultivated by those who seek enlightenment. The Tathagata's sublime form can't be represented by metal, regardless of how nice the statue looks. Those who seek enlightenment regard their bodies as the furnace, the dharma as the fire, wisdom as the craftsmanship, and the three sets of precepts and six paramitas as the mold. They smelt and refine the true Buddha nature within themselves and pour it into the mold formed by the rules of discipline acting in perfect accordance with the Buddha's teaching, they naturally create a perfect likeness. The eternal sublime body isn't subject to conditions or decay. If you seek the truth, but don't learn how to make a true likeness, what will you use in its place? 
And burning incense doesn't mean ordinary material incense, but the incense of the intangible dharma, which drives away filth, ignorance, and evil deeds with its perfume. There are five kinds of such dharma incense. First is the incense of morality. Second, the incense of meditation. Third, the incense of wisdom. Fourth, the incense of liberation. Fifth, the incense of perfect knowledge. Which means being always aware and nowhere obstructed. He's just talking about beholding the mind. Being always aware and nowhere obstructed. There is nothing that is obstructing you in this moment from realizing your Buddha nature. There is nothing that you have to accomplish to realize your Buddha nature. Nothing that you have to do. Nothing that you have to prove. No koan that you have to pass. Your Buddha nature has never left you. I never will leave you. But realizing that we like to think that it's very, very difficult. We like to think that it's something which, you know, after millions and millions of lifetimes, maybe if we're good, it will happen. But it's not like that. Beholding the mind, being with this moment, being with whatever is arising, whatever is there in your heart, your mind, your body, your behavior, your experience, that is realizing your Buddha nature. Bodhidharma really only says 
the same things over and over again. For, scatter for scattering flowers, the same holds true. This refers to speaking the Dharma. Scattering flowers of virtue in order to benefit others and glorify the real self. These flowers of virtue are those praised by the Buddha. They last forever and never fade. Those who observe the precepts don't injure any of the myriad life forms of heaven and earth. If you hurt something by mistake, you suffer for it. But those who intentionally break the precepts by injuring the living for the sake of future blessings suffer even more. How could they let would-be blessings turn into sorrows? We see a lot of people breaking their precepts and injuring the living for the sake of future blessings. It's happened, unfortunately, in Buddhist countries where the uh, Buddhist priests, where was it, Myanmar, that the Rohingya were slaughtered at the behest of Buddhist priests. There were many Buddhist priests in Japan who advocated for war, who supported the militarist faction of government because they thought that war would in some way help the Buddhist cause or Japanese culture, which they felt was inseparable. There are many Christians who are constantly beating others because they don't live up to the standard of purity that they have. That's not practice. That will cause suffering. The eternal lamp, he mentions uh, lighting eternal lamps, the eternal lamp represents perfect awareness, likening the illumination of awareness to that of a lamp. Those who seek liberation see their body as the lamp, their mind as its wick, the addition of discipline as its oil, and the power of wisdom as its flame. By lighting the lamp of perfect awareness, they dispel all darkness and delusion. And by passing this dharma on to others, they're able to use one lamp to light thousands of lamps. And because these lamps likewise light countless other lamps, their light lasts forever. So here again we have Beholding the mind, perfect awareness. 
We're not talking about something supernatural, something beyond the normal human experience. Talking about being with whatever is right here, right now. Delusion doesn't mean having fancy ideas, fanciful ideas. That's one aspect of delusion. But delusion more specifically is not seeing what is there in front of your nose. Looking right past reality. Looking right past what's happening right this moment. Usually it's because we have our eyes on some future goal. Having future goals is not in itself a bad thing. You know, I could never have become a doctor if I didn't have a future goal and had plotted out how I'm going to go about doing this. And that was important in my life. And I'm sure the same is true for each one of you, that, that you had some goal at some time which was important for you to realize. And you had to be strategic about how to, how to do that. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's, it's praiseworthy. But you always have to ask yourself what you are looking past to attain that future goal. What are you looking past right now, right, right now as we sit here? What is it that you're not aware of in your heart, in your mind, in your experience? The practice is just waking up, just waking up to, to what's going on. What's going on? What is this? What is this, right? Right this minute, what is this? And we practice on the cushion with as much interest and as much energy as we can so that that practice of attention, that practice of being awake and aware can translate into every part of our lives. If you only practice it while you're sitting on the cushion and you don't bring it into your life, then the practice is an empty practice. It's a dead practice. It has to be brought into your life. And don't be afraid of bringing your life onto the cushion with you. You know, I, I think there is an idea that we have that thinking when you're doing zazen is verboten. You're not allowed. That's no good. 
But sometimes you have to think when you're doing zazen. Sometimes you have to be aware of what's, what's going on in, in your life, what's going on in your relationships, what's going on in your heart. And if you don't allow yourself to feel that, and you don't allow yourself to think about it, then how are you ever going to really bring awareness to those situations? So yeah, most of the time when you're doing zazen, you're probably not well served by thinking. But sometimes when you're doing zazen, that is exactly the most beneficial thing you could be doing. You know, because that is going to change your life. How do you know when it's good to think and when not? Well, you know, there's no answer to that. My, my feeling is when something arises that really grabs your attention when you're practicing, when you're doing zazen, whether that thing which arises is pain in your knee or frustration or boredom, or pain in your heart because of some relationship that you have, or grief because somebody has died, or grief because some relationship has died, or anxiety because there's something going on in your life which is causing you to be between a rock and a hard place then that can be your object of attention. It doesn't have to be your breath. You can sink into that experience, be with that experience. That experience is there to teach you. You know, it's not just being with your breath that teaches you. It's your whole life that teaches you. Every facet of your life This wall that we have between zazen and our life, sometimes that's helpful and sometimes it's not. And there's nobody who can tell you when it's helpful and when it's not. It's just something that you have to be with and work with and, and be open to. You know, practice, there's no one way to practice. And if you think that, that just by being with your breath is going to be the be-all and end-all of practice, you know, I have news for you. Practice is every moment every day. The distillation of practice is what we're doing when we sit on the cushion. And it certainly helps when you can bring that mind into your so-called real life. 
but sometimes it helps when you bring your so-called real life into your sitting practice. When you feel that you have failed in some way, some moral failing, some failure of karmic relations, family relations. Sometimes the samadhi that you develop from practice is the perfect setting for you to explore. Explore what is happening to your life, to your heart, to your mind. Delve into it. You know, koans are not just in books. Koans are things that we live also. The koan of birth and death. The koan of our emotions. The koan of how to be kind and open even to those who are pushing our buttons. These are topics to be explored just as much as the koan of Bodhidharma and the emperor. Try to bring the perfect awareness that Bodhidharma talks about, the beholding the mind, beholding the mind. And it's a bit of a dance, you know, it's not there's, there's a time for focusing on the breath. There's a time for formal practices like loving kindness. There's a time for koan practice. And then there are other times when just being with what is present is so much more important. And nobody can tell you when it's more important to do this or that. It's something that you only develop through developing your sensitivity by practicing and practicing and practicing and practicing and trusting yourself and being kind to yourself and knowing when you need to do one thing or the other and trusting that if you're exploring grief, if you're exploring anger, you're exploring the poisons, your delusions, 
so that you can recognize and become sensitive to these things. That is part of what Bodhidharma calls denying entry to the poisons. How can you deny entry to something that you can't recognize? You have to learn how to recognize. You have to learn how to become sensitive. That's part of opening your heart. And the practice comes down to just two things, opening your mind and opening your heart. No matter whether you're following your breath, working on koans, doing loving kindness, just being with body sensations, whatever your practice is, and everybody, everybody does different things at different times during their, their long period of practice. You know, I've been practicing now for over 40 years, and I've done so many different practices, but they're all just opening my heart and opening my mind and becoming sensitive to what's going on. What's happening right now? What is this? What is this thing that's happening right now? The holding the mind. Anybody who has not read this book, I highly recommend. Just buy the book, read it, spend time with it, contemplate it, let his words sink in. There's nothing more that you need in terms of Zen teaching than the words of Bodhidharma. Read it with care. You're in for a treat. This has been a Zen Study Society podcast. If you found it to be of interest, please consider making a donation by visiting zenstudies.org slash donate. Thank you for listening.